welcome to the Regulation Podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Regulation. Once again, we hope this podcast will help you understand what regulation is all about, what it's all for, and of course, why it matters to the public. My name is Anthony Oliver, and I'm going to lead today's discussion as we talk about regulation's role in democracy and explore the way that effective regulation can influence policy and help to drive better social outcomes. Uh, My guest today is Jeff Mulgan, Professor of Collective Intelligence, Public Policy and Social Innovation at the University College London. And having been at the heart of advising and driving public policy and strategy for the last 30 years, it is a great pleasure to welcome you, Jeff, to the Regulation Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hi there. Great to be with you. So let's set the scene with a little bit of background about you, Jeff. From 2011 to 2019, you were Chief Executive of the National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, that's NESTA. And before that, you led the Young Foundation for seven years, a not-for-profit organisation focused on tackling societal issues. From 2000 to 2004, you were a key advisor to the Blair government as a director of the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. And of course, from 1993 to 98, you were co-founder and director of the London-based think tank Demos. Clearly, that mini-CV demonstrates you have a fantastic insight into the challenges facing regulation professionals today. So from your perspective, would you say that effective regulation has helped deliver better social outcomes in the UK? Well, I guess I was brought up to assume regulation was part of how any society runs itself. Before uh, those various roles you've mentioned, I studied telecommunications. That was what my PhD was in. And uh, at a time when regulation of networks was transforming rapidly with the breakup of AT&T in the US, the creation of Oftel and what became Ofcom in the UK, and a whole really different theory of regulation, using law and economics to change how we thought about electricity and gas and telephones and railways uh, and so on. Um, When I worked in government, uh, 97 to 2004, the UK government, it was clear that model was already beginning to fracture a little bit. It didn't really have good methods of dealing with issues like climate change, which was clearly going to be very big wasn't very well designed to cope with inequalities and issues of social access, wasn't very good for issues of resilience of systems. It was all about optimization uh, in economic terms. So when I again got quite involved in regulation in the 2010s, and worked with a lot of governments around the world and what we came to call anticipatory regulation. That is to say, how do you regulate for very fast changing technologies like artificial intelligence or drones uh, and so on? A very different toolkit was needed. And I think we're still in this sort of transitional period of regulation, learning a set of new tools and really learning new ways of thinking, which still have economics and law in there, but are as attuned to social issues, psychological issues, the public's desire to be involved in decisions, not just passive recipients of decisions, and crucially to this ability to anticipate and work with very disruptive, fast-changing technologies like meta, Facebook platforms, or quantum computing, and so on, which I think would have completely freaked out regulators of a generation ago. Well, exactly. I mean, a question I often ask the regulation podcast guests um, is, what's the point of regulation? But can you put your finger on what makes it succeed or fail? 
Not really. And, and uh, I actually teach now a course to usually people from governments all over the world who come to UCL, and I teach them about regulation. And of course, regulation goes back 5,000 years at least to ancient Sumeria and ancient China. From the very start, governments were regulating things like weights or the quality of wheat. <laughs> there are all sorts of things you needed for a society to function or irrigation to work. So I'm not aware of any society which works without regulation. But what it means changes in, a, in every era. It partly changes because of the dominant technologies. A, a world with railways and sewage and so on needs different regulations from ones which is a completely farming-based and, and today's economy and society completely dependent on data needs a whole host of new regulatory principles uh, and rules. So I guess effectiveness does depend on a good diagnosis of the needs of the present uh, and does need competence in executing them. And crucially, probably like anything in relation to government, it has to be legitimate. And legitimacy is a very subtle idea, uh, um, but, but crucial to the ability to exercise public power of any kind. And regulators in some periods are very legitimate. In some periods, you see them losing legitimacy, and then it's very hard for them to, uh, to function. Well, well, given that regulation is largely in place um, to protect the public and promote better, consistent social outcomes, I mean, do you think that regulation and regulators do a good enough job in communicating that role? Well, uh, they, I mean, they, in a way, they take some of their steers from elected politicians, and regulators can't steer too far from that. You know, for example, you know, regulating the rules of cutting people off from electricity or water if they don't pay their bills. That's essentially a, a, a political decision. Or whether you ensure that 5G is available in the highlands of Scotland or a remote island as much as it is in central Manchester or Bristol. These, these are political judgments. The regulators are more there um, to execute. I think some of the crucial questions they're having to grapple with now are these more I mean, macro-political ones, like climate change. What is the job of an energy regulator in helping society navigate to a completely different sort of system of running an economy, to a net zero economy? And in many countries, regulators are really struggling with what that means and what that means in terms of their role, the trade-offs they uh, they make. There's no doubt regulation is an incredibly powerful tool. Um, 20 years ago, I, I oversaw um, UK energy strategy and renewable energy strategy, where we committed the UK to quite demanding carbon reduction targets, most of which were met. Actually, they were super uh, more than met. And we built up um, wind, particularly offshore wind, from essentially nothing to uh, now a situation where renewables are about 40% of electricity supply, more again than most people realize. That was almost entirely done through regulation. But it was regulation over long periods of time, setting clear targets, allowing a transition process for industries, for investors and others. And in a way, that's a model of what we will need in almost every aspect of our society and economy in the next 20 or 30 years, as we do hopefully get to something closer to net zero. We need that consistency and an alignment of regulation, policy, tax, subsidies, R&D, all these other things, so that over the course of a generation, we can fundamentally transform. But regulators in the past didn't really think of their role quite like that. They thought of their role as really managing a static situation in fair ways and transparent ways, not managing transitions. And I think that's the big mindset shift we probably need now. Okay. Um, 
In 2017, when you were at Nesta, uh, you wrote about anticipatory regulation. Uh, in fact, you referenced it earlier on. Um, can you explain a bit about that, uh, what it is and why it's so important? The simple idea then was that in a lot of fields of, of, of life, basically, things are changing and in unpredictable ways. And that, that therefore requires some different methods for regulation. And this first became clear in the financial sector, uh, particularly for, for London trying to maintain its competitiveness. You needed to be possible for an innovator who wanted to bring in a new kind of financial product to work with regulators to test it out in what became sandboxes, sometimes for real, but on a small scale and for a short period of time, sometimes in a simulated environment in a much more iterative process, working with the regulators and the policymakers so that they could, as it were, anticipate changes. And that's become pretty normal in the financial field. Financial sandboxes are now in, I think, at least 100 countries. Uh, and that's seen as just the way you have to have to operate in fintech. We were pointing out uh, we at Nesta worked on open banking, which was a very good example of that, where the UK government introduced rules through regulation. The banks had to share data. So you or I could uh, take our banking data, give it to a third party to analyze or create new products off the back of it. And that was a new regulatory idea, the use of data as a stimulus for both innovation and competition. And indeed, the regulator helped create a fund, which we managed to fund innovations to use the new freedoms to improve the quality of services for customers. Now, that idea then prompted us to think, well, where else could you apply it? And we worked with, uh, with the government to create what became the Regulatory Pioneers Fund to fund other regulators to use experimental methods to test out new options. So, for example, in the law, how could you use AI to improve the quality of access to uh, law in property or you know, standard small business law? Uh, and that's worked pretty well. Or around drones is a hugely difficult issue for regulation. How do you ensure our skies aren't covered with drones crashing into each other, causing mayhem? Uh, that needs experiments. It needs test beds. It needs clear dialogue about the pros and cons of different options. And there are many fields of that kind, from uh, driverless boats to um, pharmaceuticals, where some of these new methods of an what we call anticipatory regulation are becoming more and more normal. And many countries from Singapore to Canada to Finland to UAE see this as crucial to their global competitiveness, that they need their regulations to be on the front foot, not holding back useful innovations, but equally ensuring there is safety, there is protection for the public interest as you move to these these new technologies. And um, no, nowhere's quite got it right, but I think we've, we've come a long way from maybe the norms of 20 or 30 years ago, which as I said earlier, were kind of dominated by a certain legalistic economic view where the regulator just sets the parameters for 5, 10, 15 years and, and just enforces the law towards uh, a world where regulators have to be more directly involved in, in innovation and dialogue about the balance of risks and opportunities. I mean, that said, um, do you think that regulators should have more teeth? Should there be more stick uh, 
to enable them to really drive performance? Well, no, I don't think it's just a question of giving more power. That would not be necessarily very sensible. I mean, part of what the Regulatory Pioneers Fund was about giving new skills, because often the regulators hadn't been set up for being involved in regulation. So it would have been crazy just to give them uh, more power. They had to be uh, skilled up with, with people who understood data, experiment, more direct involvement or understanding of the, the key business products and services that they were going to be involved in. Often it also needed new skills in involving the public directly, having, again, sounding boards uh, uh, earlier on, rather than seeing that as uh, almost I an inappropriate influence on, on regulation. So I think it's about making the regulatory system, system in some ways more powerful, but not necessarily empowering the regulator on their own. And the more any experiment... Um, well, any experiment in regulation has to be transparent, has to be open so that people who are critics and skeptics can see what, what happens in reality. Um, and uh, otherwise, there, there won't be any legitimacy there. Uh, and I think we're, we're part way through that process of changing capabilities, skills, and, and, and it is mindsets as well that are involved. Um, and it will go through different cycles. So like in relation to fintech, you know, there were some periods probably when there was too much uh, uh, relaxation on innovation, not enough attention to the risks and protections. And others where the opposite was the case, where it was too too hidebound and, uh, and unresponsive to, to useful changes. Okay. Well, having set up and run quite a few organisations in your career, building on the, on this idea of, of regulators needing more skills, I mean, do you see the new Institute of Regulation helping? Uh, well, how do you see that Institute helping the world of regulation? Well, I, I certainly hope you ha can encourage new skills. And the ones which I guess I'm most, I see most from my base in University College London in an engineering department is really system skills, skills which help, help people understand complex systems like energy systems, transport, finance, health, which are all very complex and interconnected far more than they were in the past. They're far more driven by data and algorithms than they ever were in the past. And it's vital that um, that people understand that, and that they can also think in multiple dimensions, not just the, the, the technical side and the economic side, but the social, psychological, public interest uh, as well. And some of these are going to be very, very difficult. Just to give an example, I was working with the government on a few months ago with a group of our my colleagues at UCL. The issue of what happens around data in your home uh, as you use energy is a really interesting one. This is absolutely crucial to success in combating climate change, that we become much smarter in reducing unnecessary energy use. And it's crucial this winter as people face appalling uh, energy bills. But there isn't really a regime for the handling of all that data, which is in my smart meter or your smart meter, or whatever, it's most of which is owned by the electricity company. And my own view is that we will actually need new institutions to regulate that kind of data. Um, data trusts of some kind, which are publicly authorized by cities or national governments to both ensure protection of privacy, because if you make <laughs> that data too visible, your neighbors can find out a hell of a lot about what you're doing uh, to a shocking extent, which I, you know, I can't say on a podcast. Um, uh, but equally, it's an incredibly valuable resource for us collectively to change our, our behavior. 
And at the moment, I think there's a lot of, I, I'll call these governance sinkholes, which is where there's a new need, but a lack of a public institution really to fill that need with the right authority, the right skills uh, to act. And in previous periods of history, there's been periods when a whole lot of regulators were created to fill those gaps. I think we're coming to another of those moments around many, many aspects of digital tech, not just regulating the internet to protect children or avoid misinformation, but the regulation of data, the regulation of algorithms, and very soon, the regulation of quantum computing, which could completely destroy the cryptography on which our Gmail, our WhatsApp, all these other things depend. Huge changes. And of course, let's have a look at some, some of the future challenges just to finish off with. I mean, following Brexit, for instance, I mean, what do you think are the biggest regulatory challenges facing the UK? Well, one of the I mean, the great disappointments of the last 10 years, whatever you think of Brexit, and I was not a great fan of Brexit, but in some ways it's amazing more work wasn't done by the Brexiteers to think through how regulatory freedoms could be used by the UK. It was alluded to again and again, but I repeatedly remember asking people, okay, well, what is the plan? What's the, you know, what are the top 100 things or 200 things where some distance from the EU and the single market could give the UK more more latitude? Uh, and it doesn't just mean reducing, you know, standards of food regulation. It could be you know, uh, changing regulations on, on data or AI, making it easier for our creative industries to function or allowing the city to do things in financial technology, which might have been harder in the European context. And I just think this was a, a great national failure by both sides of the debate. The Remainers perhaps didn't want to think about it, and the Brexiteers were just far too lazy, I think, uh, and casual about it, as a result of which in 20, 2022, it's very hard to see really any, even now, strategy for the UK to use regulation outside the EU to reinforce UK comparative advantages, of which there are many. Do, or do you think it's necessary or possible to regulate technical goods and services at cross-national boundaries, you know, whether social media, online platforms, cryptocurrencies or or the metaverse. Is it possible? I, I think it's, it's it's not only possible, but necessary. And, uh, and one of the things I, I work on at the moment is new multilateral institutions, where again, going back to um, governance sinkholes, we have a, you know, a lack of global institutions to regulate things like cybersecurity, uh, flows of data across borders, as well as, you know, a whole, um, whole host of other things about products. And I think it's not impossible to fill those holes where there's an alignment of interests of the EU, China, the US, and on various topics, there will be quite significant alignments of interest at some points uh, in the future. No one wants a world, you know, of rampant cyber attacks and collapses, just to take one of many, many examples. And I think the UK could have been more on the front foot on proposing and actually designing truly multilateral answers to some of these things. Uh, in the absence of those designs, the default is the EU sets the rules, and we just have to become a, a taker of those rules, as has happened on GDPR and many other things. But I think there's a potential, though US politics is a bit determinant of this, but, you know, of, say, US, EU, China, India, at least, uh, a, a agreeing a small number of essentially global regulatory uh, arrangements to protect us against disaster. And of course, that is happening to a degree in climate change is what the various COPs 
are about um, uh, the Paris Agreement and so on. So even on very difficult things, the world is able to make some kind of uh, collective agreements, even now. Well, in the context of, of COP27, um, I mean, should, for instance, environmental damage be regulated? And, you know, how would rules in that case be enforced? Well, I think that there's there's several aspects. I mean, certainly environmental damage is and will be regulated. And um, the world is bringing much stricter reporting requirements in the next year, both the EU and the US, and I think China as well, in relation to company reporting on uh, environmental effects. There's been a lot of greenwashing and, uh, uh, and PR, and there's pressure to get much more real about that. Um, there's definitely going to be pressure on all the big infrastructures to embed, as it were, attention to their carbon emissions, their environmental footprint in how they work as part of their license to operate. Um, and uh, as I said, I think we'll also see much more regulation or use of data and digital, partly to monitor all those other things uh, and partly uh, in its own right. We're in a world which is becoming more turbulent, more chaotic, and regulators who think they're functioning in a sort of stable equilibrium system will look increasingly foolish. And there's a cost to that because it does mean, you know, that the cost of resilience and spare capacity en ends up falling on consumers and investors. But I think any regulator who hasn't appreciated we are in a different environment in that respect risks coming a cropper. <laughs> Okay. Well, just to finish off, Jeff, just get some uh, advice to those working in regulation. And I should mention, you know, your latest book, a world, Another World is Possible. You talk about uh, working to deliver a world in which people thrive and where uh, we improve our democracy, welfare, neighbourhoods and education. I mean, what advice do you give? How, how can those working in regulation take advantage um, of the opportunities? Well, a lot of what my book is about is trying to encourage more systematic thinking about where we might want to be 20 or 30 years from now. Uh, the technology world does this very well. It invests heavily in sort of dreams of future AI, robots, et cetera, et cetera. And Hollywood pictures them very well, as, as indeed it pictures ecological disaster. But we're really short of serious in-depth work uh, a gen looking a generation into the future. For example, you know, how will a, a truly circular economy be run or regulated, which is ensuring much lower levels of waste of, of plastics and glass and clothing and electronics uh, at, a t at, at a moment where we still bury lots of these in the ground and are completely inefficient. And future generations, I think, will look back in horror at how we organize material flows. Now, that's the kind of task which needs regulators working with academics and experts and economists and others to think through, well, actually, what might this look like? What issues would it throw up? Or ageing, a completely different example. You know, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be an even older society, lots and lots of very old people with um, all sorts of disabilities. Again, how do you how do you run such a society? How do you handle uh, housing, uh, regulation of safety, transport, uh, rights, all of these things? And and in my book, I'm trying to show all the methods which can be used to do this thinking much more, both imaginatively and rigorously. Uh, and that's a discussion I think regulators should be part of because they will be a crucial part of the answers there. And if they imagine they're in, as it were, an unchanging present, <laughs> they will in some ways be letting down future generations. 
Jeff, it's a fascinating subject. And so thanks so much for joining me today on the Regulation Podcast. A fascinating conversation for sure. Really interesting challenges. And I fear that we've just scratched the surface of really downloading some of the real gems that are going on inside your mind. So uh, thanks very much for joining us. And I hope maybe we can get you back to drill into some of those in, in the near future. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you very much. Well, thanks. As I say, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, But we will have more regulation podcasts uh, uh, in the pipelines and more guests to talk to as we continue to probe the big issues faced across the sector. Uh, If you haven't done so already, do check out the new Institute of Regulation website. That's www.ioregulation.org, where you'll find a huge amount of really useful information about the Institute and about the issues and challenges facing regulation. And, of course, you'll find all of our latest podcasts for you to listen to and, of course, to share. So thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks again to Jeff. And on behalf of the Institute of Regulation, I look forward to seeing you again very soon.